Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to all of you. This is an exciting and joyous time of year for all of us. As I was uh, walking around uh, in between services, one of the children in the church, uh, uh, a sweet little uh, girl, uh, gave me a hug and, and gave me this card she made uh, that just is from her and, uh, and uh, just a wonderful joy-giving thing. And that's what we do at Christmas time. We give gifts of joy to one another. And it is an exciting time to give and receive gifts. It's one of the things that uh, I greatly enjoy about the Christmas season is watching small children as they grow in their excitement and anticipation. They're always counting down the days to Christmas and they can hardly wait for the day to come when those shiny gifts will be opened. And I remember that feeling and that sense of excitement when I was a small child as well. But I also remember the year that I discovered the joy of giving. You know, so I think in the earlier years, the excitement's mostly focused on the receiving of gifts. But I remember the year I discovered the joy of giving. Uh, the book of Acts says that the Lord Jesus taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I remember the year I discovered that principle. I was nine years old and I had just got my paper out. I was delivering the Sentinel. And so for the first time I had my own money. And my older brother and I decided we wanted to do something really special for our parents. And so we began saving up our dollars and our dimes. And I still remember the this little brown container that I was keeping the money in and hiding it with. And we uh, conspired with my grandparents to buy uh, my parents a garage door opener. Back in those days, uh, that was not uh, something that was in every home. And, but it was something we knew that my parents would, would really appreciate uh, there in Colorado. And so we saved up our dimes and pennies for months, months and months. We saved up, saved up. And finally, we had enough to buy the garage door opener. And the grandparents made the purchase for us. And we could hardly wait. We wrapped that up and put it under the tree, could hardly wait for our parents to open it. When they did, I just remember the, the, the kind of the joy of giving. When they opened it up, I experienced this great joy in seeing them realize how costly uh, the gift was, how much of our money we had devoted to it. We basically put everything we'd earned from our paper outs for several months into that gift. They realized how long we'd been planning it and what an expression of love that gift represented. And that was just such a great time of joy. This morning, I want you to contemplate how costly the gift of salvation was, how long God had planned to give it to you and the depths of love that that most special gift represents. I've entitled Today's Christmas message, unto us a son is given, and that phrase is taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, which we'll talk about at the beginning and then at, again at the conclusion of the message, describes the giving of Christ as a gift. It says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. A son has been given to us. This is the greatest gift ever given, the gift of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we all love to tell the stories of the, the kind of the greatest gifts we've ever received or given. Uh, every Christmas, people reminisce. Hey, remember when, you know, you know, little Sally got, you know, got the bike, or remember when we gave this or received this, or remember when we sent, you know, grandpa and grandma on the cruise or whatever it is. People love to recount the story of giving and receiving great gifts. So that's what we're going to do this morning, but we're going to do it with the greatest gift ever given, the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're going to tell the history of the giving of that gift. And that history starts not in time, but in eternity past. The sending of our Savior was decreed in eternity past. And we're going to be looking at kind of seven uh, steps or seven scenes in this history of the giving of the greatest gift. And the first of them occurs in eternity past when the sending of our Savior was decreed. Scriptures are clear that Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. John chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to say, He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, Jesus is God, He is eternal, and He is the Creator. So the biography of our Savior is one that has no beginning and will have no end. Jesus himself says in Revelation twenty-two thirteen, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, he is the eternal one. And this uh, this is revealed uh, long ago, back 700 years before the birth of Jesus, by the prophet Micah. 700 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Micah prophesies under inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And that's what we tend to focus on in Micah's prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the revelation that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. But there's another element of Micah's prophecy I want to draw your attention to because this prophecy makes it clear that the one who was to come, the Messiah, the Savior who was to come, was eternal. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." This is an amazing aspect of Micah's prophecy. Not only does he predict the place of the Savior's birth in Bethlehem, this, this podunk little town on the outskirts of Jerusalem that Micah says you're even too small to be numbered amongst the clans of Israel, yet from you is going to come the one who will be the eternal ruler of Israel. And, and Micah says, this one who is coming is one whose going forth are from long ago. This is written 700 years before Jesus. Micah is saying about Jesus that his goings forth are from long ago, which extends into eternity past. And he says that his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Jesus 
is the pre-existent eternal son of God. And Jesus himself declared his eternal pre-existence in unmistakable terms when he said in John chapter 8, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. And when he says I am, he uses the phrase ego eimi, which is the Greek translation of the sacred name of God revealed to Moses when Moses said, what shall I tell the people of Israel your name is? And God answers, Yahweh, I am who I am. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He is the eternal pre-existent one. And since our Savior is eternal, the history and the story of our redemption begins in eternity past. We have to begin there. Our triune God is eternal. He is omniscient. And he is not bound by time the way created beings are. And while there is a lot of speculative debate regarding how God made decisions in eternity past, the fact that he did make sovereign decisions in eternity past is crystal clear in Scripture. I want to give you, have you turn to an example of that. We're in Isaiah 9. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 46. And we're going to hear from the mouth of the Lord his own declaration of his sovereign decisions. Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 8. He's going to begin by asking us to remember something. Isaiah 46, 8 says, Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. By the way, uh, it does not appear that the goal of Scripture is to boost our self-esteem. It appears that the goal of Scripture is to get us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, as the Scripture says, so that we will be exalted by him in due time. And so the Scripture is not shy about stating the truth about us, which is that we are mortal and we are fallen. Recall this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done. And saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This, by the way, includes both judgment and salvation. As he goes on in verse 11, he says, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely, I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. There's that self-esteem boost you were looking for again. Listen to me, God says, you stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. Again, humble yourself. Realize you are far from righteousness and you need the righteousness of God, which is received only through Christ. You need his death, burial, and resurrection for salvation. So listen to me, you stubborn-minded, God said, who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay and I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. See, God's 
sovereign purposes will be fulfilled. He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not yet been done. He says, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He says, if I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. If I've planned it, surely I will do it. And one of the things that he has planned is our salvation, to bring his righteousness near to those who are unrighteous, to you and to me. God made sovereign decisions in eternity past, and he is fulfilling all that he purposed in his heart to do. And this, by the way, is the amazing, joy-giving, awe-inspiring, worship-calling truth about God's sovereign decisions. In the kindness and love and grace of his sovereign will, God decided to save us from our sins and give us eternal life through Christ. This history of our salvation, of the greatest gift ever given, begins in the kind intention of his will in eternity past. In eternity past, the Father decided to send the Son. The Son decided to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Holy Spirit decided to seal and indwell believers for all of eternity. The kind intention of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit begins in eternity past. This is where the history of our salvation begins. Before the world was. And it begins in the heart of God, in his love, his mercy, his grace, and his kindness. Listen to the testimony of the New Testament. Listen as I read to you Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And I want you to hear the rooting of our salvation in the kindness, love, and grace of God in eternity past. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, every discussion about the sovereignty of God should lead to worship, not to debate or arguing. This is a precious truth because it is God's revelation of the kind intention of his heart and of his sovereign will and of his omniscience and his eternality, all of which should lead us as it does in Ephesians 1.3 to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him, listen, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times 
That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Notice that this section begins by saying, blessed be God, and it ends by twice saying, this is all to the praise of his glory. We worship, we praise God because there was kindness and love in which God purposed to save us in Christ. And all of this took place, it says, before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us. You have been loved before the foundation of the world. So the history of our redemption is truly his story. And that story began with the love, kindness, and grace of God in the eternity past. This is not just taught in one place in the New Testament. It's taught everywhere. The first apostolic sermon after the ascension of Christ by Peter in Acts chapter 2 talks about the beginning of this gift being rooted in eternity past. Listen to what Acts chapter 2 verses 22 through 24 say. Peter has just got done saying, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. All of this, Peter says, occurred by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 also speaks of the rooting and the purposing and the planning of this gift and the sovereign decision made as occurring in eternity past. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You are saved not on the basis of your works, Not 
according to your works, but according to God's own purpose and his own grace, which was granted, gifted to you in Christ Jesus, it says, from all eternity. The giving of this gift was decided in eternity past. Paul goes on to say that this grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gift purposed, planned, and decided in eternity past, now unwrapped, revealed in Christ, our Savior. Titus chapter 1 begins with a similar theme. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Your salvation is secure because God promised and he cannot lie and he promised long ages ago. Now listen to what it says. We have the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Verse 3, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. A gift planned, purposed, and decided in eternity past, revealed in the fullness of time by the birth, life, death, and burial of Jesus Christ. Well, that is the first episode in the great history of our salvation. The second one I want to talk to you about occurs in the Garden of Eden. So we're moving now from eternity past to the Garden of Eden. God created man in his image, created a perfect world for us to dwell in, after God creates the world, Genesis 1.31 says, God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good, all that he had made. Now, we look around today, we don't see that everything is very good, so what happened? Well, the reality is that mankind fell into sin. God had placed Adam and Eve in the garden, gave them the fulfilling and meaningful task of tending the garden and managing the creation to rule over creation as a vice-regent of God but Adam and Eve listened to the voice of Satan rather than the word of God. Satan, the fallen angel who is the source of all evil, tempted them. They chose to obey him rather than God. And so just as God had warned them, the wages of sin is death. But God in his grace and mercy provided a sacrifice to provide a covering for Adam and Eve, foreshadowing the time when the Lamb of God would come to provide atonement for sin. And it was at this time, immediately after the fall of man into sin, that God first revealed that the Savior would come and defeat the devil to destroy his works. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 God is speaking to Satan and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. This is singular. He, that is the seed of the woman, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is 
what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the first revelation that a savior would come born of a woman who would defeat the devil and rescue us from his power. So the sending of the Savior was decided and decreed in eternity past, then first revealed in the Garden of Eden, and then next, third phase, promised to Abraham. Promised to Abraham. We're moving from eternity past the Garden of Eden now to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. This is the Abrahamic covenant. It's first revealed in chapter 12 and then expanded and explained throughout the rest of Genesis and and frankly throughout the rest of Scripture. But in Genesis 12, God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham which contains three elements of promise. A promised land, a promised son, and a promised blessing. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There are three elements to this promise, a promised land, a promised son, and a promised blessing. And the rest of Genesis goes on to explain that that Abraham and Sarah, even though barren, even though in their old age, would have the son of promise, Isaac, and that through Isaac and then Jacob and then on down through the line through David and all the way to Christ, there would come this promised one who would bring the blessing of God to all the families of the world. A promised land, a promised son, and a promised blessing. These were promises that God made unconditionally and unilaterally. In those days, ancient times, there were two types of covenants. A bilateral covenant where an agreement is conditional upon both parties holding up their end of the deal and a unilateral covenant in which one person simply made a vow to do something. When a bilateral covenant was made, they actually called it cutting a covenant because they would take a sacrificial animal and cut the animal in two and put, spread the pieces apart and both people would walk through the pieces symbolizing that they were promising with their life to fulfill the terms of the covenant. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, he communicates in a way that would have been so poignant to everyone living in that day and to Abraham himself. God walks through the pieces of the sacrifice alone, a unilateral, unconditional covenant in which God is vowing by his life to keep the terms of the covenant that he has made to keep his promises. He would keep these promises no matter what. They were unconditional promises because they were rooted in the eternal sovereign decision of God to shower grace and blessing upon all the families of the world through Abraham's descendant, the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. So from eternity past to Eden, to Abraham, and now to David, the sending of our Savior was prophesied to come through the line of David. 
And when we read the Christmas story, we may wonder why the Holy Spirit included those long genealogies that appear in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 1 and in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. I don't know about you, but most of the times, you know, you're kind of reading along, you almost have a tendency to skip the genealogies. You know, lots of names that are hard to pronounce. And sometimes we wonder, well, what what difference does it really make who Jesus' great-great-grandfather was? Well, it makes a lot of difference. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises David that one of his descendants will establish a kingdom which will last forever. The Messianic promise is said to David in the Davidic covenant to be one of his descendants. And throughout the Old Testament, the coming Messiah is predicted to be a son of David, the root of David's father, Jesse. The son of David would be the savior of the world, the Old Testament proclaims. So the genealogies and the gospels are there for a very important reason. I remember watching, there's a, a wonderful uh, ministry uh, in Israel called One for Israel, and um, have the have had the privilege of meeting many of the leaders of that ministry. They uh, have these videos with testimonies of Jews who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. One of them said, "You know, I always thought of Jesus as a Gentile because, it, you know, he was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family. He just always thought that Jesus was a Gentile." He says, "What's what the Lord used to draw him to faith in Christ is the genealogy of Matthew." which he realized that Jesus was the one who had been promised by the Old Testament prophecies. That's why the genealogies are there. They're documenting the marvelous fulfillment of all of God's promises, and they are providing compelling evidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and in fact, only Jesus can be the promised Messiah. The genealogies are important. So when you read the genealogies, which I hope you have or will, you'll notice that the genealogies in Matthew and Luke both start with Jesus' adopted father, Joseph. Why do they start with Joseph? Well, that is because the genealogies are following the meticulous genealogical standards practiced in Israel in those days, and the ancient genealogies always trace a person's lineage through their father, even if that is an adoptive father. So both Matthew's list and Luke's list start with Joseph. But then, if you notice, Matthew says that Joseph's father was named Jacob, whereas Luke says that Joseph's father was Eli. And then the list, as you go back through the generations, continued to be very, very different in the preceding generations until they merge with David. Why are the genealogies that are common at David, then different, and then merge again at Christ? Why are they different? The answer is because Matthew is recording Joseph's line and Luke is recording Mary's line. Matthew traces the legal lineage of Jesus in order to prove that Jesus is, by virtue of his adoptive father Joseph, the legal heir of the kingly line of David. The right to rule was passed down father to son, and Joseph was the legal heir of the kingly line of David. And so Matthew traces that legal right to rule through Joseph, the Lord's adoptive 
earthly father. Luke, on the other hand, traces the biological lineage of Jesus in order to prove that Jesus is, by virtue of his mother Mary, a physical descendant of David, just as the prophecies had predicted. By the way, then as now, a married man was considered to have two fathers, his biological father and his father-in-law. In fact, because husband and wife were viewed as one, as they should be, as we are taught by the scriptures. In those days, they didn't even have a term for father-in-law. They just had the same term father for both. They had a son of one was the son of the other. There's no separate word, excuse me, for son-in-law. So Matthew correctly says that Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Luke correctly says that Joseph was the son of Eli. Eli was Mary's biological father. So Matthew traces the lineage through Joseph's biological father, and Luke traces the lineage through Joseph's father-in-law, Mary's biological father. What's the point of all of this, and why is it so important? Again, as I said, it shows the fulfillment of God's promises. But there is a fascinating reason inside those genealogies which shows why only Jesus could fulfill the Davidic covenant and only Jesus could be the promised Messiah. If you notice carefully in Matthew's genealogy, there is a great-great-great-grandfather in that lineage, one of Joseph's great-great-grandfathers, whose name is Jeconiah. Who is Jeconiah? Why does he matter? Well, Jeconiah was a wicked king whom God cursed. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30 says, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now, for the ancient Israelites, this curse created what seemed like an impossible dilemma. On the one hand, God had promised that the kingly line would be the line of David through Solomon, and that line goes through Jeconiah. But now that line is cut off by God's command. So how could God keep his promise? That the Messiah's kingly line would be the line of Solomon, and that the Messiah would be a physical descendant of David, And also keep his promise that Jeconiah's physical descendants would never again be king. The answer is and can only be the virgin birth. By the way, the unbelieving rabbis tried to get out of this dilemma by saying that, well, God later kind of took back his curse on Jeconiah. But as we've read, God, who does not lie, keeps his promises. And it is only the virgin birth which can fulfill all of the promises of God. Jesus is a physical, as prophesied, Jesus is a physical descendant of David through Mary. Because Mary descended from the line of David's son, Nathan. And Jesus is the legal heir of the throne of David through Joseph who descended from the kingly line of David's son, Solomon. 
But Jesus is not, just as prophesied, is not a physical descendant of Jeconiah. Only the virgin birth. Only the virgin birth with Jesus born of Mary and with Joseph as his legal adoptive father can resolve this dilemma and fulfill all of God's promises. Only the virgin birth means all of God's promises have been fully kept. And only the virgin birth fulfills the Davidic covenant and the curse on Jeconiah. The legal father of the Messiah had to be the legal heir of David's kingly line through Solomon, and Joseph was. And the biological mother of the Messiah had to be a physical descendant of David who was not a descendant of Jeconiah, and Mary uniquely fulfilled both conditions. There are many reasons, and I'm sure secret ones in the counsel of God, why Joseph and Mary were chosen, but their lineage is a key part of it, as revealed in the genealogies in Matthew and Luke. These genealogies are powerful reminders that God always keeps all of his promises and that Jesus and Jesus alone is the promised Messiah, the root of David who will establish a kingdom that will never end. So this gift begins in eternity past, it's revealed in the Garden of Eden, it's promised to Abraham, is promised to come through the line of David, and now it is described in more detail by the rest of the Old Testament prophets, that's phase number five. We don't have time to go through all of these prophecies, but several of the most important ones are Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which prophesies 700 years before the birth of Christ that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And Micah 5, 2, which I read earlier, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. There are other prophecies that reveal that infants would be killed as Herod tried to kill the infants in order to try to kill Christ, that the Messiah would have to sojourn in Egypt and that out of Egypt God would call his son when the Lord would return from that sojourn taken to Egypt by his parents for his protection. All of this was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. And the Gospel of Matthew in particular emphasizes this When you read the Christmas accounts, you'll see the words, it was written and it was fulfilled over and over again. Chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Verses 17 and 18 and verses 21 through 23 all mark the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And the fulfillment of these prophecies given centuries earlier is powerful proof that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one sent to give us the greatest gift ever. Well, we move then to the unwrapping of that gift. The sending of our Savior was fulfilled, the scripture says, in the fullness of time. Purposed and decreed in eternity past, manifested in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, verse 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son Born of a woman. There's that reference back to Genesis 3.15. Born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's the great gift. To receive the adoption as sons. Listen to what this gift is like in the next words. It says that Christ came 
to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This eternal inheritance, which belongs to Christ the Son, is now yours by adoption. You are a co-heir with Christ of his eternal glory, greatest gift ever given. That is the seventh point. The sending of our Savior was the greatest gift ever given. And it was a gift, a gift of love. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave What did he give? He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This gift has been given. Have you received that gift by faith? Don't leave it, as it were, sitting under the tree unopened. Receive the gift by faith. 1 John 4 By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's the greatest gift ever, ever given. At the beginning of the message, we read the prophecy in Isaiah 9. I want to return there as we conclude And just spend our remaining couple minutes gazing at the wonders of this great gift. The first phrase in Isaiah 9, 6 says, a child will be born to us. That the king of all kings and lord of all lords would come as a baby, born in a stable, laid in a manger, should never cease to fill our hearts with wonder and awe. And it should remind us to humble ourselves. If the exalted one came in such a lowly estate, we must humble ourselves. It should force our foolish pride to bow the knee to the Lord. Dear friends, you and I have no right to demand anything higher or better than the Lord. We have no right to expect or demand anything higher or better than the Lord. One of the problems that happen, spiritual problems that happen at Christmas is people have high expectations and those expectations aren't met. Children can expect a certain gift and they're disappointed in what they get. Adults aren't free from this. You can expect this glorious time with your children and grandchildren, with your relatives, the Sibling you haven't seen in years and your hopes can be dashed either because someone can't come or because someone who came behaves in such a way which shatters the expectations of that iconic Hallmark Christmas. And when our expectations aren't met, we tend to react with anger and other sinful responses. You know, it can keep you from disappointment or lashing out when your expectations are dashed, humble yourself. Don't let your pride, your ambitions, 
or your expectations rise above the rim of the manger. Think about the first Christmas and what the Lord Jesus experienced and don't expect better. It is likely that your Christmas will be more comfortable and your state will be better than that that the Lord has. All of that is grace, so count it as grace, grace upon grace. We don't deserve better, we deserve worse, so don't let your pride, your ambitions, or your expectations, particularly for the holiday, rise above the rim of the manger. Next phrase says, a son will be given to us. This is a reminder that if the Father has already given us his only begotten Son, how will he withhold from us anything else that we need? That's the exact point that Romans 8 makes. We should be reminded by the giving of the Son that God will give us everything that we need. He will take care of us. Then there's the phrase, the government will rest on his shoulders. That continues on in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is just good news. This is our hope. The coming kingdom. Jesus Christ, when he returns, will establish a kingdom of justice, peace, and righteousness, and the government of that kingdom will rest on his shoulders, and that means no more corruption, no more petty politics, no more lies, no more injustice, and no more evil. Just our loving and righteous Lord ruling and reigning in a kingdom that never ends. A perfect government requires a perfect governor. And so we say with all the saints of all the ages, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Isaiah says that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, the source of wisdom. Mighty God, Eternal Father, one with the Father and Eternal, and the Prince of Peace, the one who brings it and who rules in peace. This is who we celebrate. So let's remember that Jesus is the reason for the season. Lord, we thank you for this greatest gift ever given, decreed in eternity past, revealed in Eden, promised to Abraham from the line of David, in detail revealed by the Old Testament prophets, given in the fullness of time, and rejoiced over by all the saints of all the ages. For this we give you praise, glory, and honor. We honor you in this season where we celebrate your birth and your coming to save us. Thank you for this great gift. To you be all praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.